You're listening to a podcast produced by Kayama Community Radio. Welcome to KCR Features, where you can hear what the locals are up to. And I'm joined this morning by Dr. Amanda Gamble, clinical psychologist, and she specialises in sleep disorders and anxiety. Good morning, Amanda. Morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming in. Amanda, you're a local. Um, Yeah. So how long have you lived in the area? Um, We've been here full time since just before the pandemic. So probably 2018, Mm -hmm. we've been down here full time. And before that, we were sort of up and back down here part-time okay and your where's your practice uh in berry okay and your yeah. practice is called practice is called south coast sleep psychology so it's in the name yeah okay yeah. <laughs> okay and you're a mum of two young children i am i've got a boy who's seven and a little girl who's four okay so you know about sleep deprivation <laughs> then firsthand yeah, absolutely i think all parents do don't they yeah they do yeah. so and you're um clinical psychologist why what made you have your specialty as sleep disorders yeah interesting so it was a bit of a journey I mm-hmm. must say so um I sort of started out working in anxiety disorders so Macquarie University has a big child and adolescent anxiety disorders clinic and I was there um there for about 10 years but I became really interested in the overlap between sleep and anxiety um, being a poor sleeper myself. So I sort of have this childhood where I was very afraid of the dark and used to sleep in my parents' bedrooms and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and at that particular time in Australia, there wasn't that many psychologists working in the field of sleep. Mm-hmm. So sleep was very much sort of the purview of medical professionals at that time. Um, and so it was wide open for research. So I went across to the Woolcock Clinic, which is a big mm-hmm. clinic in Sydney that does sleep and respiratory disorders, um, and sort of started working with children and teenagers that have sleep disorders. So that's sort of how I got into it. Mm, okay, great. And it is, I mean, you know, it, I think it's a huge area, isn't it, these uh, sleep disorders. But I guess my uh, question, I've been thinking about this, What? how would you define, so some people could say, I'm a poor sleeper, but what's the difference between poor sleep and actual a sleep disorder? Right, so... The difference really is on a spectrum. It's it's a difference of degree. Okay, mm-hmm. so if you look at the um, the diagnostic criteria for insomnia, say for example, it says you know do you have difficulty falling asleep and staying asleep more than three nights a week for longer than three months? And there are many people that would meet that criteria. But the second component is does it interfere with your ability to function? So is it having an impact on your daily life? Is it making it hard to, you know, go to work, to concentrate? And also, is it causing you distress? So it's really those second two components, the dysfunction and the distress that take something over the line to become a disorder, if you like. Yeah, that makes, that does make sense, of course, as if things start to impact on our day-to-day life then it becomes a more serious issue. Yeah. So what are... So I guess you touched on that. So what is the impact of poor sleep on someone's mental 
or physical health. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think sleep deprivation is something that everybody in the community has probably experienced, you know, at some point or another. So um, all of your listeners would probably know those impacts. So mm-hmm. I guess, you know, from an emotional standpoint, what sleep deprivation tends to do is it tends to turn the volume knob up on everything. So if you're a little bit frustrated, then you're really frustrated. If you're a little bit sad, you're going to be really sad. <laughs> yeah. A little bit stressed out, you're going to be really stressed out. So it tends to have an amplification effect on, you know, whatever the underlying emotional um, current is at the time. Um, so it, it has that impact. Obviously, you're going to be tired, you're going to feel lethargic, it's going to be hard to get up the motivation to do particular things as well. Um, and on a physical um, sort of side, sleep is really important for our immune function mm-hmm. um, and also for our body's ability for growth and repair. So if you're not sleeping well habitually, so if you're not sleeping well constantly, um, it's going to lower your immune um, function. It's going to make it harder for your body to sort of fight off illnesses and it's going to be slow. You're going to be slower to recover. Um, but it's also going to impact our concentration, our attention, our ability to learn new things. So um, we become quite cognitively inflexible when we're sleep deprived. So it's hard to sort of think out the bo- outside mm-hmm. the box. It's hard to be creative. Um, and it's also going to impair our ability to, to make new memories, right? So part of what we're doing when we're sleeping is we're taking things from short-term memory that we've learned during the day and we're laying them down into long-term memory. So when we're not sleeping well, we're not making sort of memories that we can draw on for later use. That's so interesting. Yeah. That's so interesting. And hence, when you're talking about everything's amplified, that's saying I'm crying tired. Oh, tired um, tears. <laughs> tired tears, I think we've yeah. all been there. Oh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, clients will often say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm crying. Yeah. No, <laughs> this is the place for it. Just, it's tired tears. Just yeah. exhausted. And I think a lot of mums of young babies oh, yeah. get to that point. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a rite of passage, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. You can now take us with you. Download the Kiama Community Radio app or listen via iHeartRadio. Amanda, what are the so can you share some insights into the most prevalent sleep disorders and their symptoms? Yeah, absolutely. So the most prevalent sleep problems sort of changes across the lifespan. So in little kids the most prevalent sleep problems are, you know being scared of the dark, ghost monsters and co-sleeping with parents. Um, In teenagers, there's a really interesting sleep disorder that emerges for the first time and it's called delayed sleep phase syndrome. So adolescents sort of undergo a hormonal change that creates a a biological drive to want to fall asleep and wake later. And we often think of these teenagers as being lazy, you know, just get out of bed, um, force them out of bed. But actually, that's one of the worst things you can do. Um, But in adults, the most so the most statistically common sleep problems in adults would be um, insomnia. Right. So the, the symptoms of insomnia are just trouble falling asleep and staying asleep or waking too early. Um, where that's going to, you know, make it really difficult to live our lives and create a lot of distress. So um, some of the main symptoms I see with that are um, people getting very, very worried about their sleep. So we think about sleep anxiety, um, which unfortunately is self-fulfilling. So the more I worry, you know, Mm -hmm. am I going to fall asleep tonight? You know, I've got this big thing on tomorrow. Of course, the more incompatible with sleep that is. So we tend to go round and around in a circle in bed at night. Um, the other really common sleep disorder in adults is actually obstructive sleep apnea. 
right? So that's where as we age, um, we might become heavy, loud snorers. Um, and throughout the night, um, our, our breathing becomes obstructed. So either up in the sort of back of the throat um, or a little bit lower down. And what that means is that people, uh, their oxygen level is dropping in their blood and that sends off a little mini alarm and the person sort of jolts out of sleep and they may not remember it. Um, but what you get is this sort of very fragmented poor quality sleep so the person wakes up and they feel really unrefreshed they might have a headache dry mouth that kind of thing um so so they're probably the most too common insomnia or obstructive sleep mm. apnea yeah when you talk about the sleep apnea and the poor sleep i i think i read something where it it did connect to um i guess dementia or cognitive decline yeah sure is that something that yeah yeah so sadly um you know if we don't diagnose and we don't treat poor sleep be that in the form of obstructive sleep apnea or insomnia so just poor quality sleep that goes untreated over a long period of time that actually um yeah it puts us at increased risk of um neurocognitive decline Mm. Um, and that's because part of what our brain is doing when we sleep at night is actually washing out the brain we're cleaning our brain we're getting rid of the gunk that's sort of formed over the day we're getting rid of neurons that we don't need and we're creating new ones Um, and so if you don't sleep well you're sort of constantly interrupting that process so um, yeah our our brain is going to look different Mm. at the end of you know 20 years of poor sleep than it is 20 years of good sleep Mm. So very important that we get our sleep, you know, yeah. under control. There's a lot of people yeah. out there that are sort of ignore, you know, their their partners are trying to get them to go off and have their snoring investigated, mm-hmm. and they don't want to. But from a health point of view, they really should. It's really important. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and what is um, what are some lifestyle factors or habits that can contribute to development of sleep disorders? Yeah. Okay. So the 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 sort of common risk factors are behaviours that inadvertently interrupt sleep. So the big one is is having a chaotic sleep-wake cycle. So the best thing that you can do for your sleep is lock your wake time in, okay? So mm-hmm. if you lock your wake time in, you're going to uh, basically anchor the two processes that control sleep, one of which is your circadian rhythm or your body clock, because your body clock will get light at the same time every day, so that tells the body clock to sort of be stable and support your sleep. And the other one is called homeostatic sleep drive, which is a horrible long name. But basically what it means is, you know, from the moment you wake up, you're building an appetite for sleep. So if you wake up at the same time every day, um, then your window for falling asleep becomes much more regular as well. If you move your bedtime and your wake time around all the time, sleep gets very unstable because you you create instability in those two underlying processes. Um, so so having a regular sleep wake time, um, that's an important thing in terms of risk factors. And the other ones are sort of lifestyle things. So drinking a lot of alcohol, you know, nicotine. Um, doing lots of exercise close to bed is not a great idea. We mm-hmm. want to do the exercise in the morning. Yeah. Um, caffeine? Yeah, caffeine. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I missed that one. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So the so the life, you know, when you have a, a cup of coffee, let's say, that is going to be out of your body in eight hours' time. And it's going to be at half strength at four, okay? Wow. And multiple teas and coffees accumulate. Um, so wherever possible, 
you know, caffeine's not bad, but let's try and get caffeine in the morning and cut it off, you know, sort of 2pm. But look, I do have a lot of clients that would be having tea at night time and things like that. And yeah, if you can swap to decaf, that's good. Or chamomile tea. Yes. In the evenings. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Uh, Amanda, so I have a question. Um, Gabby has asked what uh she said in scandinavia couples have separate doodas mm-hmm. what what's uh yeah what are thoughts on that oh, look this is music <laughs> to my ears gabby um <laughs> look i think you know as we get older um our sleeping patterns change and and there's many things that can sort of interrupt our sleep so i think so you'd be amazed the statistics on sleeping in separate bedrooms, sleeping in separate beds, having, you know, those partner minimization disturbance um, mattresses and things. I think anything that you need to do to sleep well, people should do and not feel guilty about it. Like, oh, I'm not sleeping in the same room as my partner or, or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really a personal individual choice. Um, and I think a lot of times people feel like things like that reflect something about their relationship mm-hmm. or what have you, but um, everyone needs their sleep. So however you can get it, you get that sleep. And if it's separate doonas, then that can be really important because different people's, um, you know, your body temperature runs at a different rate and many perimenopausal and menopausal women will know this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, it's important to support those individual differences in how people can sleep well. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And I mean, yeah, people, I think, get concerned, oh, we're in separate beds or separate bedrooms. But if you're happy because you've been sleeping well, you're probably going to have a happier relationship. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) It's a very individual thing. Mm -hmm. So are there, um, for people that obviously have, have issues with sleep, are there any specific strategies or techniques you recommend for improving sleep quality without medication? Absolutely. So we have really, really good research to support a suite of strategies that people can use. Um, So the the most supported treatment is cognitive behaviour therapy for insomnia. And basically this consists of a couple of different stages. So the first one would be um, just sort of trying to regulate your sleep. So as I said before, waking up at the same time every day is going to help sleep enormously. Um, because it creates a more consistent bedtime window. So the more you can lock that in, the better. So an early, uh, sorry, a consistent wake time is the most important thing. Um, What's also really important is having a wind down period before bed to actually ready your brain and body for sleep. So having a sort of a a predictable bedtime routine that's always the same. Um, Trying to steer clear of really hot showers or excessive exercise prior to bed, not eating a whole heap before bed, um, and particularly not eating really high-protein foods before bed. Caffeine and alcohol, we've mentioned those things um, before. Um, The other thing is not spending excessive time in bed awake. So the classic thing that someone with insomnia will do is they'll go to bed earlier and try harder. And that is the worst thing that they can do. Mm -hmm. So basically we want people to go to bed when they feel sleepy and to not stay around in bed if they're feeling really stressed and they can't sleep. Um, So that would be something that a psychologist would sort of help them with. Um, 
And the the last factor would be really looking at um, do I need to take steps to minimise my stress or depression? Because obviously sleep can be very disturbed as a function of those. So um, they would be the top things that I think are good to do Mm. if you're looking to improve your sleep without medication. Sure. Now you touched on, you said don't eat a lot of protein or eat before we go to bed. Mm. Um, which sounds like common sense. However, some people sit and they eat all evening and they'll, yeah, they'll sure. just before. Is that because our body's trying to digest the food that it, it's too active to to relax or Absolutely. sleep? Absolutely, yeah, that's right. So protein's a lot harder for your body to break down than a carbohydrate um, and that's why they're so good for us to mm-hmm. give us sustained energy mm-hmm. through the day. Uh, but when we go to bed, we really want our stomachs to be sort of emptying or on the empty side and that's because um you know if you fall asleep and your digestion shuts down as a function of sleep you know all those metabolic processes are going to sort of calm down as you go to sleep you're just sitting you're just sleeping with a whole heap of undigested food in your stomach so um that can interrupt interrupt sleep but it's i'm sure there's a you know a digestion specialist out there would have that would have their own um, thoughts yeah. on, on what it that does yeah. yeah it does make sense doesn't it and it probably also if you think about that probably anyone that's got weight issues i mean Absolutely. if you're not digesting the food probably sort of sit there isn't it so that sort of all compounds really absolutely well sleep's also important for weight management so if you sleep poorly you will gain weight mm. um and part, there are many reasons for that but one of the main reasons is that um one of the things we're doing when we're in deep sleep is we're actually sort of um, we're dealing with our glycemic control, our blood sugar control, um, and our insulin. So um, when we don't sleep well, we interrupt that process, and it just becomes really hard to lose weight, even if you're trying, if you're not sleeping well. That's really interesting. Actually, I was at um, a health retreat called Gwingana up in Queensland, and mm-hmm. one of the talks by I have a very experienced uh, trainer up there, and when he talks about um, weight management and the five pillars of well really the five pillars of health but the very first thing and the most important which pretty much shocked everybody was sleep yeah if you were not having a minimum of i think it was seven hours a night sleep yeah there you was no way that you could get your weight under control Absolutely. and i found that i was actually quite surprised because i he had exercise up there he had nutrition he had hydration and i would have thought exercise would have been way before sleep but um he mentioned a study that was done in the uk i think of nurses i think there were twenty thousand like of nurses mm. that they studied and because they were shift workers but they went through and the ones that were you know obviously the worse sleep and the less sleep the the bigger issue they had with weight management um absolutely yeah, yeah. i mean it just uh, just shift work in and of itself is a risk factor for obesity. Mm. Um, and that's because people are uh, sort of awake and working at a time when their body shouldn't be. So it does interrupt their metabolism and their um, uh, sort of processes around that. But um, also they tend to consume high sugar foods to stay awake. Right. Yeah, of so course. Yeah. <laughs> if we're on night shift, we've probably got yeah. a bag of lollies yes. or something that we're – or high-carbohydrate food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. KCR, Kiama Community Radio.org. For the community, by the community. Are there any specific age groups or demographics that are more prone to certain sleep disorders? Absolutely. So, 
So probably the easiest way to answer that is to say um, within children, the demographics that are most likely to present with sleep problems are kids that might have another kind of difficulty. So they might have ADHD or be um, on the autism spectrum um, or have global developmental delay and sleep can be very disturbed as a function of those. So they're sort of the most likely kids to present or, as I said before, um, kids with anxiety have a lot of sleep difficulties. Mm Within adults, the the most sort of key age groups are um, probably uh, women of approaching perimenopause and menopause mm-hmm. presenting, and they'll sort of say, look, I've been a great sleeper my whole life, um, and now I don't know what's going on, but I'm waking all the time at 3 a.m., and my sleep's really sort of splintered, and it's hard to get back to sleep once I wake up. So that would be another common point. Um, and then within... As we sort of get older, um, sort of 60s, 70s, 80s, sleep can become very disturbed as a function of some other kind of physical problem. So obstructive sleep apnea, we've sort of mentioned, but other things like having chronic pain um, and and difficulties with mobility, things like that are another common reason why people um, would present for help with their sleep. Hmm, Okay. Just touching on um, the menopause and perimenopause, is that um, lack of sleep, is that due to hormonal, you know, different changes? Absolutely, yeah. So I, I must admit this is an mm. area of developing knowledge for me. So mm-hmm. there's probably a menopause expert out there now that's mm-hmm. um, double-checking what I'm saying. Uh, but, yes, I believe there's multiple processes. So there was a study that was done recently that looked at sleep in males versus females across the lifespan. And in females, sleep bottoms out at age 55 so there's sort of this slow decline and this real bottoming out at age 55 <laughs> okay. and this but pleasingly there's a slow incline as well so after age 55 it sort of tends to creep up again um so perimenopause and menopause definitely going to impact sleep um i believe that having high levels of cortisol is one of them and and sort of high levels of est- unchecked estrogen are some of the main factors that are going to disturb sleep mm-hmm. and the other one is as we get older um regardless of whether or not we're male or female, our melatonin, which is our sleepy hormone, that hormone actually starts to decline. So that's another big reason why sleep tends to get more fragmented and more disturbed as we age. It's just the lack of that sleepy hormone. Interesting. And I'm here with Amanda, Dr. Amanda Gamble. We're talking about sleep. She's a clinical psychologist. Amanda, what... um, where will people go if people are really struggling and um, lack of sleep or they have a sleep disorder, you know, and they're thinking, what, what can I do? What, where can they go to get help? First port of call is always your GP. Okay, so your GP will basically listen to the sleep difficulty that you're having and they'll decide, is this likely to be a physical problem? In which case they might send you off for a sleep study and you'd be referred to a sleep and refer- respiratory physician. Um, and we have a couple of great physicians in the area Um, or they might say you know I think this sleep problem is maybe linked with anxiety or or behavioral factors in which case they could refer you to a psychologist like myself or there's many great psychologists in the area um, who can take you through CBT so cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia so it's an evidence-based set of strategies Um, the other great resource that Australians are able to access if you go to the website www.thiswayup.com.au, 
www.cbt.org.au. Um, the Australian Government provides a number of CBT evidence-based courses for a number of problems. So there's a, an online course for anxiety, for depression, but there's a really great one for sleep. Um, and so you can, I, I think you pay $60 to access that course or your GP or your psychologist can prescribe it for free. Um, so thiswayup.org.au, I'm not affiliated in any way, but they're just yeah. really great courses. Oh, yeah. That sounds, that's great advice. And finally, what are some key takeaways or tips that you'd give to people about improving their sleep and overall or well-being? I always say to people, if I fall under a bus tonight, I want you to remember (laughs) to lock your wake time in. It is the most important thing you can do for your sleep. So lock that wake time in, get a bedtime routine happening, and then make sure you have a look at your anxiety and and maybe mood and and take steps to get that help. So really, and also good sleep hygiene. So sleep hygiene, yeah. Look, sleep hygiene, all those factors in, is necessary, but it is rarely sufficient. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's a rare person with a sleep problem that's going to correct their sleep hygiene, mm-hmm. and that's going to be enough. Yes, it's definitely important, but um, you know, there's other sort of higher tier treatments, okay. I guess. Yeah. For okay, but lock in that wake up lock time. Lock in that wake time. If I fall under a bus, yeah. that's what okay. I want you to do. So everybody, make sure lock you are setting that alarm every morning for the same time. That's it. That's uh, the uh, yeah the, the main bit of advice from Amanda. Yeah. So Amanda, you are South Coast Sleep Psychology. Awesome. That is your practice. Um, and I guess if anyone wants to be, uh, to get in touch with you, that's where you will go, South Coast Sleep Psychology. Uh, you can email, um, you can find her there. She's located in Berry. And thank you so much. Look, there's so much more that we could talk about. This is just such a huge topic. It's been so informative. Thank you so much for coming in, Amanda. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. And I think we need to uh, definitely get you back in again because we, we haven't really touched on anxiety today as well. Sure. But anyway, we'll, we'll get you back in. Thank you. For more KCR features, check out our catalogue of KCR podcasts at kcr.org.au. This podcast was produced by Kiama Community Radio.